You're listening to The A-Game, an adcom podcast chronicling the week in media, technology, and agency life, featuring Joel Hammond, Jim Ganser, and Jeff Culleton. This week, Gillette finds their purpose and New York Times finds incremental ad revenue. We cover it next. You're listening to The A-Game. Each week, we bring together experts representing core areas of our ad business to get their takes on what's trending in the world of media and marketing. What you get, you're welcome, is a 360 view of the topics you need to know about. My name's Jim Ganser. Joining me today, talking marketing technology and trends, Jeff Culleton. Good afternoon, my friend. Very good to see you. Joining him and myself, our media acquisition and programmatic strategy expert, Morgan Rooks. Hello, hello. The glaring omission is our good friend, Joel, who's not going to be here today because he's got fatherly duties. Big hole. Big hole in my heart. Big hole in my heart. But, you know, my heart is is full knowing that he's doing his thing as a dad. You know what P.T. Barnum would say? What's that? Show must go on. It should. It most certainly should go on. Indeed. Yeah. And, and we've... <laughs> We've got a pretty big week here this week. Um, there, there's been some there's been some press about advertising this week. Uh, but before we get started, Jeff, uh, do you shave? Do you, you shave under the beard? Oh yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What kind of razor blade do you use? Uh, is it a Gillette razor blade? Maybe. Is it? Maybe. Are you asking honestly? Yeah. No, just curiosity. I haven't t- a razor hasn't touched my face and. I, it's been years. So a beard trimmer, but maybe that beard trimmer was made by Gillette. I don't know. Yeah. Not a political move. Jeff actually just grows a beard. I just grow a beard. He's a bearded man. Gillette did catch some news this week. Oh, did they ever? Uh, they actually released uh, a new spot, a long form spot. I think it was a good minute and a half. Morgan, what was that spot about? Can you break it down for us? Oh, I love that this gets tossed to me. <laughs> so, um, potato. if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to Google it. Uh, Gillette released a spot that a lot of people are saying is in re- direct response to the Me Too movement. Um, and it's taking on, quote unquote, toxic masculinity. Um, and it's a direct message to um, men who use their product and hearkening back to their old brand slogan, the best a man can get. That's a hell of a breakdown right there. What kind of press are we we getting on this, Jeff? What have you been reading up? Well, I mean, it, not surprisingly, the you know you you've got a really divisive split on people who think the ad is 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 timely and well positioned and well done, and people who feel that it's it's overstepping of bounds by a brand, um, and you know to to say what percentages are, who knows, but. I mean, man, is it? It is each end of the spectrum, and people, they're, they're, it's visceral. People are are posting about it, talking about it, um, in, in a lot of different capacities, and it's interesting. I mean, it, it, is it the place? I mean, I ask you, is it the place of a brand uh, to to make a social stance like this? And and have they now, or have they in the past, you know, built the cachet or the groundwork to be able to do this? Yeah, it's it's a good question. It it's a question that frankly comes up quite a bit because there's more and more brands out there that are throwing their hats in the in the, the social conversation. So I I don't necessarily want to position this as a trend because I think that is, you know, for somebody to have an opinion on a subject matter like this, which is a powerful opinion sure. and it is a powerful ad, and whether you agree with it or you disagree with it, 
it definitely makes a statement mm-hmm. and it stays with you. Frankly, you know, we've talked about this internally here. I've gone like full circle on the ad. Yeah. You know, the first time I saw the ad, I was like, feels like a bit much. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's not a political statement. It has nothing to do with me. It just, it felt like they were trying to pack a lot into this ad. And the way that it was positioned, my initial response was, oh, this is intended to be provocative and to potentially alienate certain people. That's that's how I initially- That was your, your gut reaction. That was my first reaction. And I thought maybe they could have softened some of their stance. But the more time I spend with it and the more time I think about it, number one, you know, what it, what it comes down to for me is the, the question about whether a brand belongs in the conversation really comes down to, is this in the brand's identity? Is it in their DNA? And I usually go back to, you know, mission statements. And I'm just going to share the mission statement that I dug up on Gillette. And then you guys tell me, what do you think if, if, if this is actually in their DNA or if this is a manufactured sure. point of view? Yeah. Okay. So work with me here. Uh, Gillette has been at the heart of men's grooming for over 100 years. Each day, more than 800 million men around the world trust their faces and skin to Gillette's innovative razors and shaving products. This commitment to giving men the very best is carried into our line of personal care products, including deodorant and body wash, all designed for the unique needs of men, helping them to look, feel, and be their best every day. When do you think that mission statement was written? I'm not sure. You know, it's it's very product focused. Yeah. But I keep going back to that last statement, helping them to look and feel and be their best every day. So putting their best foot forward, essentially. Sure. And some of that is cosmetic. Some of that is just the residual effects of doing something to make yourself look better and the benefits associated with that. But then you get into the be their best. So is there a hook there? Does it feel on brand? Is it a leap? Go ahead. So I can't say specifically or or pinpoint when that was written, but I think one thing that we should keep in mind is that um, Gillette was purchased by Procter & Gamble in the early 2000s. Um, I believe it was 2005. And I would be willing to bet that this mission statement is more of a reflection of Procter & Gamble than as maybe Gillette has been over the last 100 years. Procter & Gamble has been noted to have these types of uh, social commentary commercials, often a bit lighter. Um, They started off a few years ago with Always um, and the uh, Like a Girl campaign, you know, really harnessing that. Um, They've had uh, the Pantene Strong is Beautiful campaign. They had um, their Emmy award-winning commercial, The Talk, last year, which addressed racism. So I feel as Procter & Gamble as a whole – this is probably this is definitely a bit more provocative yeah. um, and a bit more controversial than they've ever taken before. But they're not strangers to this type of advertising. So let me, the, the, Morgan. Let me ask you maybe in a different way. So I, to me, a lot of this is a is, is a conversation of expectations, and so the Gillette and Procter and Gamble thing is interesting. Although I wouldn't immediately know either one of those had a stance on on social issues. I think the so let let me use the example of Patagonia. 
So Patagonia has like a day one mission, and it's something they kind of shout from the rooftops. It's an environmental converse, or conservation issue. And so people are very comfortable when they come out and they're political or, you know, whatever the, the, the case is. Does this seem to you to be a more of a conversation around expectation of a brand from the get-go versus expectation of a brand. I think the the recency of the mission statement referencing they've been around for 100 years, so on and so forth, makes it feel like it's convenient. Like they they are looking and saying, um, we, we want to have a social brand, a brand that has, has, uh, is taking a stand against um, things that we see that, that need changing and we have the platform to do so. The reason I, th- I think some people feel it's disingenuous is because it feels like it feels new versus somebody like Patagonia who like day one is like, this is who we are. Is that, do you think it's a, like a conversation of convenience? Um, I don't know this is necessarily convenience as much as it might just be, um, I hate to say a brand pivot because that sounds a bit too strong, but maybe yeah. just um, recognizing opportunity to uh, restructure the conversation around your brand. Um, actually, there's a quote that I have from Procter & Gamble that said, quote, it's time that we acknowledge that brands like ours play a role in influencing culture. And I think that that plays a huge part into where they're going with it. I think um, Procter & Gamble and perhaps the products underneath them are realizing that they have a voice in this conversation and that they're reaching out to the type of of consumer that they want to be buying their products, similar to Nike. I mean, there's there's some similarities here to Nike and there's some differences. Um, I think a lot on the approach um, and a lot of the background are what's different. And I think that kind of relates to what you said about just like the, the convenience and the kind of the shock factor of this. We weren't prepared. I think they're also appealing to their their, their customer of the future. The now, mm-hmm. but the future. It is, it's well documented that millennials and the generations that are going to precede them have more of a social conscience than anybody before then and gravitate towards brands that they think stand for something. Yes, 100%. And so this is, this is as much a, of a calculated business tactic for the now because, you know, why doesn't – it's easy to litigate why wasn't this kind of thing more prominent, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years, 20 years ago. Why are we talking about toxic masculinity? Well, the fact of the matter is that society wasn't ready for it. You know, as societally, we weren't we weren't we weren't okay with hearing this message. But the consumers of the future, the people who are spending money now and will continue to spend increased volumes of money, absolutely are ready to hear this kind of message. And the brands that want to be associated with them are 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 going to market with it. Yeah, one of the questions that came up for me when I, I first saw this and started reading numerous articles about it was: Is this too risky? For a brand to make a statement like this, and and one of the things that I always gravitate towards is, what's the business opportunity, mm-hmm. right? And you kind of touched on it. We're we're talking about millennials, and then I mean we're going to start talking more and more about Gen Z as well. Mm-hmm. And there are commonalities and there's differences, but the social component is a consistency with a younger audience. And the fact of the matter is, a decade ago, Gillette controlled about seventy percent of the marketplace. This past year, they sunk below 50%. That's real. And they're also seeing some of their margins start to shrink because they're being beat down on the price of the blades. 
So we saw upwards of a 12% uh, cut on their overall cost, not cost, uh, the revenue mm-hmm. based on sales last year. So they're making less money per sale and they're selling less volume overall. Is this a way to offset that? Who knows? Um, but the question that I'd pose to both of you is, do you feel like they are actively courting controversy with an ad like this? Hmm. You, what do you think? Mm, I think they're well aware of it. Um, and I think they understand the PR implications. I don't think they went out with the idea of being just so incredibly provocative. I think they went out with a mission statement and they, they understood the consequences. Does, are, you, are you dissuaded from a brand by controversy, so yes. to speak? Does that dissuade you from? Yeah. Um, I mean, our listeners don't know this, but you guys know this full well. There are, there are certain brands that I will not um, give my dollars to because of political stances or because of things they do. Um, there's a, a very small company called Gooders. They make running sunglasses, and they're very popular, and I was interested in a pair of them. But they recently started advertising on social media with a lot of drug references. And it kind Ooh. of reached this peak point where they were talking about mixing Vicodin and alcohol. Ooh. And their comments just exploded. You know, given the, given the opioid epidemic yeah. in the state of Ohio and in the nation, it was just a really – really poor move on their behalf. That's and it's really out. soured my vision of their company, and it makes me not want to want their sunglasses anymore. There's um, controversy and self-inflicted wounds. <laughs> you know, thinking you're the cool kid in school and you can get away with saying anything, the market is right to check you. Yeah. Absolutely right to check you. Gooders. <laughs> Poor gooders. The they're, re- they're really cool sunglasses. But, batters. Um but, you know, the, the term I keep saying is woke advertising. 2019 is the year of woke advertising. And I kind of am tired of that word woke, but um, here we are. <laughs> here we are. And I think people are taking a more um, active participation in the um, idea- ideology of the companies that they're giving their money to. Mm-hmm. Really what we're talking about is – an evolution of a campaign that started over 30 years ago. The best a man can get is 30 years old. So the disconnect for me is it seems like they are stirring the pot a little bit. And I'm not saying it's wrong to do that because this is a serious issue. And as a man and a father of little boys, I mean, I've knock on wood, I've got three healthy boys. I got one more coming. In about six weeks. So if that's not totally for the third is coming. Yeah, that was a. So just if anybody Mm -hmm. was thinking that Jim's trying to start an agrarian society, it's actually just his third child. Let's let's not limit ourselves. (laughs) Let's not limit ourselves. But Sarah, soon to be three young boys, and these are issues that are really important, and these are things that I take very seriously. Uh, I think where some of the controversy comes in is. Naturally, when when statements are made about, um, and and really what this comes down to is the original tagline is, is basically what a man receives the benefits of a product. And they're shifting over to the best a man can be. And that's really about what's expected of a man. 
which naturally says, do you fit in? And it causes a defensive response from people. And yeah, some of that is political. We're in a politically charged environment right now. But this is really, I, at its core, I don't think this is about politics. I think it's about decency. Um, Can I ask you a question? Yeah. So from a paid media perspective, somebody, the two of you, from people who architect strategies for brands, when you do something like this, is it something that you do to put out as an owned piece of media, or would you ever put dollars behind amplification of this? I don't think you necessarily need to, but I think if you're standing behind what you're saying, you do. So, so are you are you buying Monday night football spots of the best a man can be at? I think you have to. I don't. I don't think this is a retelling of your narrative. I think everything that you do moving forward needs to be viewed through this lens. And they've actually referred to this lens as besting. And you're already starting to see it with some other ads that they're running right now. Um, Shaquem Griffin, um, the linebacker for um, the Seattle Seahawks, Mm -hmm. you know, notoriously drafted, has one hand, made it to the NFL. There's a really touching spot that they have. That's a great ad. Yeah, um, you're right. With a dad and his kids which are the Griffin brothers who are actually on the same team in Seattle right now. And it goes through, you know, the progression of the challenges and how the dad helped him get to where he is. And it's a really touching spot. And then there's another ad that is, I think it's a slightly different product, um, but there is a man helping his elderly father shave. And these are just tenants of this concept of besting. And I think what we're looking at here is an evolution of that Obviously, this is the most notorious of the spots, and I think it's really designed to make a statement. One of the things I told Morgan earlier this week, I felt like this really feels like a Super Bowl ad to me. And I'm really kind of scratching my head about it because I feel like on some, in some respects, I feel like it's a natural fit for Super Bowl because it's, it, it kind, of, kind of smacks of like the wall. Sure spot that was um, famously debated last year. But at the same time, the more time I I spend with it, just like my initial response, it can stand on its own right now. You're not competing with every other brand trying to be over the top. You are front and center. But initially I was thinking, wow, that would have been the ultimate place to put it. But to Morgan's point, I don't know that you need to put money behind it. In the lad, the subsequent three, four, five years, Super Bowl ads have started coming out sooner and sooner, previewing sooner and sooner, so people get more shelf life out of them. Is this potentially just the new version of that? I mean, is this is this somebody putting a stake in the ground three, four, or uh, three and a half weeks before that actually comes out? I mean, it could be. I think I agree with Jim's statement that releasing it earlier gives it opportunity to have conversation without all the other voices from all the other commercials surrounding it. Yeah. Um, and so I, th- I think that's completely intentional. You know, they wanted to make sure that this got out there and people got a chance to see it and they had a chance to talk about it without, without the rest of the clutter. Um, I think what's interesting for me to see where this will go from here. So in 2017, maybe 2016, Axe, body spray, you know, the Axe products, they smell terrible. Sorry. Um, They actually, 
They actually re-jam. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Jim. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, they actually did a pivot similar to this. So if you've ever seen Axe advertising, it's notoriously problematic um, from its portrayal of women. It's it's very it for th- throughout the years it's very much male gaze, it's very much objectifying women. And uh, in 2016-2017 they took a stance of what it means to be a guy. That was their commercial and it was based off of Google searches of what people were actually searching like can a guy do this? Can a guy wear this? And it was basically saying that yeah, you can you can do or you can be whatever you want and it took a much softer tone. Um, and it kind of started breaking down that idea of toxic masculinity, that guys only have to be one thing. But um, they kind of backpedaled from that after that, you know, that came out, it made a splash. And then they kind of reverted to their old hokey, not as objectifying, yeah. but definitely not continuing down that same path. Huh. So it'll be interesting to see where Gillette goes with this, where Procter & Gamble goes with this, if this is just a sign of things going forward with how um, politically and you know, culturally motivated they'll be with their messaging, or if it'll be back to all signs normal. Did you say who owns Axe Body Spray? Unilever. Okay. Which is always ironic, and I don't want to go off on a tangent too much, because Unilever also owns Dove. And Dove is pretty popular for having really well-done commercials, um, celebrating all sorts of female body types, all types of women, um, even transgendered. And then on the flip side, to have these problematic Axe body spreads, it always was just really mind-boggling for yeah, me. Yeah, that's it, it's that's convenient. That is them. That's that is a convenient business unit for them. I it's don't. It's just tough to. It's tough to talk. It's tough to talk differently depending on your product line. Yeah, I mean, we we're getting into a broader debate about you know, companies and their portfolio products and how those products need to um, live harmoniously under one roof. I personally feel like each brand is their own separate entity. They have their own identity. Um, I think that's totally fine. I also feel like it's okay for a brand not to make a social statement. Not every brand needs to make a social statement. It's like, I don't want to know what Big Red thinks. I just want to chew it. They want you to get closer, Jim. That's right. And and that's about as social as I want from my gum. I like that he chose Big Red. Is that that top of mind? That Big Red freshness cuts right through it. So before we pivot onto lighter conversations, can can I hearken back to Jim's stats about uh, Gillette sales? And can we talk about, is that really due to the proliferation of of Harry's and Dollar Shave Club? Or is it because beers have become so popular? Ooh. The spouse of a very bearded man asks a question. Well, put it this way. Between Harry's and Dollar Shave Club, they account for about 10% of the market currently. Really? 10%. Huh, that's interesting. And Schick's not crushing it these days. I'm just (laughs) going to throw that out there. For all you Schick razor guys out there and gals, keep keep your head up. You might have some company soon given some of the nonsense that's going on around, um, you know, the the ad campaign here. But for all intents and purposes, I think there is definitely a trend towards beards. And even, you know, those that aren't growing big, bushy beards, for the most part, there's definitely a lot less regular shaving going on. 
So that could be it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's I mean, that's cyclical stuff. I mean, oh, of it, course, of course, it all Just, goes away and sideburns are in and blah blah blah. But I'm waiting for the mutton chops to come back. Oof, oof I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, game time. Yeah, the the last thing that I'll bring up on this, and I've kind of talked off air with with both of you high level about this, but Seth Godin, author, business thought leader, came out with a. A blog post today about how to be honorable, and I'll kind of cut to the chase on it. Honorable has always been measured against the current culture, not an absolute of what we're capable of. Over time then, as the culture changes, what used to be honorable becomes dishonorable. Sticking with it because it's always been that way is a truly lousy reason to persist in a behavior that causes harm. I thought that was timely, I think that was well said, and I frankly don't think that's controversial, and I think ultimately, whether you like the ad or not, it's relevant, and I'm just glad people are talking about it. I agree. I Brands deserve to reinvent. I think brands deserve to have the ability uh, to have commentary on social issues that are going on. We have no shortage of them. But, you know, we, we never really do. And they have a pulpit. I mean, they, they, they have a platform that the vast majority of entities cannot, you know, cannot replicate. So I think it's, I, I think it's cool. I, I think the thing that surprises me, I, and it shouldn't, but the, the, the thing that surprises me is the amount of negative uh, sentiment, specifically around kind of, you know, can a man be a band anymore? And, you know, th- those undercurrents are still so strong. And it just, you know, personal opinion, I just wish they weren't. But it's, 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 I, kudos to them. I think it was, I personally think it was a well done ad. All right, we're going to move on to the next subject. I thought that was really good. Uh, this one is, is, is a bit interesting. It's obviously not controversial in any way, but it, it actually harkens back to episode 20 when we started talking about what to expect in 2019, we started digging into the lists, the list makers, the prognosticators. And I turned and I looked at Jeff and I said, we saw a record year with smart speakers. Is now the time to start developing custom skills? And you said, absolutely. So one of the things that I found interesting looking through the trades this past week is New York Times is in agreement with Jeff. And frankly, what they've determined is a lot of brands and frankly, a lot of publishers are not really capitalizing on this smart speaker skill opportunity. A lot of it is really tied back to, you know, weather reports and like base level functionality. So New York Times is doubling down and they're starting to develop a little bit more around this. And what they're going to do is they're going to bring T Brand Studios in, which is their um, custom brand studio work, uh, in order to start developing skills specifically for clients. What's interesting about this is that they're not actually going to be promoting these. They're going to be standalone pieces. So people will still need to find them, interact with them, but they're doing all the, the mechanics of building out skills. Primarily, it sounds like more for like the CPG category initially, yeah. and then also getting into e-commerce. But it, 
Do you guys find this interesting that we've got a publisher that is developing an ad platform that frankly doesn't have any ads tied to it? It really is interesting uh, just because this seems a little bit out of the realm of what the New York Times normally does. But as you mentioned, um, Amazon does not allow for advertising on Alexa. And this seems like a kind of a sneaky way to get around that by um, selling a skill in lieu of ad space. To me, the reason voice is and will continue to succeed is because it's convenient. It's super convenient for people. The reason some of the adoption levels I don't think of critical mass the way most people thought they were yet is comfort level. It's still something that people are getting comfortable with. Uh, I, in my personal opinion, the next year, 18 months, two years, the, the, that critical mass is really going to start because uh, of the thing that we've begun to see is uh, not uh, voice uh, assistance just in a speaker, voice assistant in your everyday life, voice assistant in, I think it was, it was either Whirlpool or GE has launched a line of uh, kitchen products that can be accessed via voice. And so I, I think it's an early adopters, it, it's an early adopters technology that people are still growing comfortable with. And that has been, in my opinion, slightly reduced by the data breaches that have happened over the last X amount of time. People are still getting comfortable with, well, if I say this, what's being recorded, what's being tracked? So I think people are still getting a level of comfort with it. Mm-hmm. It, it. To me, it makes perfect sense as audio starts to kind of regain some momentum that something like the New York Times, which is a massive podcasting engine, which is a massive content en- engine out, outside of just the written word, would pioneer something like this and then figure out how to monetize it down the line. The thing that you brought up, which is interesting, is, is convenience. And, you know, you cannot deny that being able to go to a smart speaker and ask a question is super convenient. But you know what's not convenient? Strapping a phone to your face and trying to get an immersive experience like that. People don't want to do that. Nope. Yet a couple of years ago, 2015, the New York Times uh, caught fire by sticking in um, you know, Google Cardboard into their Sunday paper distribution so that people actually had a means to have a VR experience. And then they started selling that to brands as an opportunity to create custom uh, videos uh, that are more immersive, jumping on the wave of a new technology. And, you know, to be honest, it, it kind of crashed and burned. People are not, you know, there's still a small segment of the population that's into VR. But what's nice about what New York Times does is it's not just about coming up with a new financial model. It's about the branding of getting out in front of technology and finding a way to bring brands into it. A lot of it is perception. And um, Sebastian Tomich actually commented on the way that they look at things. And I thought this was really interesting. He says, I like to look at, I like to think of these things in two-year cycles. So where there's an opportunity to try a new platform and leverage the credibility of the newsroom to help propel us on brand side, think of new creative executions for clients is key. So it's not about this is the future. This is like a two-year sprint. And oftentimes, salespeople jump in and say, this is the next big thing. They're saying, this is just something we do. And we're going to attach our newsroom to it, something that has been proven to be monetized. 
People pay for their content. Uh, I, I thought it was a really smart move, but the approach of just jumping on things for two-year sprints, what do you guys think about that? It's it's hard for a company. So they're not a product company. For a product company, that makes some sense to me. I think a lot of people malign. You remember Google Glass? People malign Google Glass because it's stupid looking. And frankly, it was stupid looking. And the early adopters Disagree. of it. What's that? Disagree. Found it fashionable. <laughs> okay, Jim. Uh, the premise of, and uh, you mentioned VR, I think I'm bullish on the, the kind of the reinvention, the reinvigoration of virtual reality, augmented reality through some sort of physical headset. Um, I think we're seeing adoption of that right now. I think we're seeing the early pieces of it. And I think um, what it ends up being is going to be a lot less obtrusive. Um, Two-year sprints are really hard for a product company. Two-year sprints are even harder for somebody trying to emerge a product in the market because adoption, even from early adopters on the brand side of things, is uh, is slow. And so I, I just don't think you, I think in my, in my head, it's hard to pull enough actionable data out of a two-year sprint uh, with both sales cycle upfront, getting it in there, and then being able to have campaigns in market and then pulling back enough data to make it statistically significant. Morgan, do you think this is more marketing than sales? I do, and I respectfully disagree with Jeff's take. I think the two-year period oh, is brilliant. I respect um, that. Oh, I thought she was talking about Google Glass being uh, cool. No, no, Google Glass was terrible. <laughs> we agree to disagree. Everybody forgets that Snapchat You know who'd agree with out. me right now? Joel Hammond. Joel. Snapchat came out with glasses themselves. Uh, I, you know, Everybody I do think this is a marketing thing, and I think if you look at how much the digital industry has evolved in the last two years, I feel like two years is the perfect window to figure out if they can develop something, if they can monetize it, and if it's going to stick. Because things are evolving so fast that you can't waste time on it. You know, if, if you're looking at an emerging technology or, you know, yes, you could say Alexa, Alexa skills are emerging technology, or you could say we've, we've may have reached the midpoint. We don't know because we don't know what's next. But no one can afford to waste too much time on something that might be gone in two years. What is the New York Times' goal out of all of this? Is it to be is it to be seen as forward thinking? Is it uh, is it to find the channel that is eventually going to supplant the way they currently make revenue? Is it? I don't know. If it's if it's to be forward thinking, then two year sprints make a lot of sense because you can shove off things that don't work very quickly. Mm -hmm. If it's the if it's the looking at what's going to replace our revenue model for the next 50 years, whatever that may be, you have to I you have to give things more time. But I don't I don't think there's I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer to it per se. I think having a culture where trying and failing on new product and new idea is essential to survival. And I think if they do that regardless of you know, what my X's and O's look like on it, that they're ahead of the game of the vast majority of companies. And I love that. Mm. I, th I think really what it comes down to is branding. I think ultimately, and this is not in their mission statement, even though I'm a big fan of reading mission statements, as everybody knows <laughs> Nerd. here. Nerd. Um, Nerd alert. Uh, I think what they're really trying to position themselves as is a brand worth paying for. 
So, and you, you see this a little bit with the daily podcast, and I'll kind of leave on this point. Initially, they had shifted towards a revenue model of subscription base, and they've been very successful with that. So up comes this new podcast called The Daily, and the debate ensues internally, is this something that we want to give away for free? Mm -hmm. They decide it is something they want to give away for free. Why? Because it's going to elevate their brand. And oh, by the way, they're bringing in over a million dollars in ad revenue annually with that podcast alone. But that is a special piece. That is a true daily podcast. That's got to be very difficult to maintain, but it's probably not a um, cash cow in terms of overall revenue for them. Yeah. But it's another spoke in the wheel, and I tip my cap to New York Times. That's all the time that we have this week. Got opinions? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook at the AdCom Group. If you're curious about how we do things at AdCom, Instagram is the channel to check out. And if you simply want more, click to subscribe, and you'll find us in your newsfeed. And while you're in that newsfeed, look out for B-Sides, because that's out now, and it's red hot. Joel Hammond did a great job this past week. Uh, for Jeff and Morgan, thank you for listening. Have a great weekend.